Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. I don't like crooks, and if I did like them, I wouldn't like crooks that are stool pigeons. And if I did like crooks that are stool pigeons, I still wouldn't like you. The great boss has spoken. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. Who are you? Who are you? A very bad man. I'm a very good man. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, even after 11 and a half years, we've found a way to piss off a new community after last episode. Can you guess who that is? Uh, white guys on the spectrum. <laughs> <laughs> More specific than that, though. The effect of altruists? Did we piss them off? I don't think so. No. I, I, we've paid definitely some of them. Like, are they really effective altruists if they were pissed off? Like, <laughs> kind of begging the question. But uh, no, what I'm thinking of, because we've probably pissed off the effective altruists before. I don't believe that we've ever pissed off Anesthesia Reddit. <laughs> really? We did? Let me read you. I went to the Reddit uh, page. I haven't read all of it uh, because there's a lot of stuff on the effective altruist yeah. aspect of it, but I did see this. The discussion of general anesthesia was hard to listen to due to the ignorance of the three interlocutors. There are great articles on this subject, hyperlinked, that are comprehensible to a non-medical audience. Even better, have on a physician anesthesiologist who can explain what is known about this subject. It may not surprise you that a medical specialty that disconnects people from reality, among other things, has thought and researched this subject a great deal. So I was right, white guys on the spectrum? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, no, I mean, uh, look, I mean, I'm it's really... true that we should have had a, an anesthesiologist on last episode if we were going to bring it up in past. That's right. That's know? right. Obviously, <laughs> I, uh, we, we did not stick to the usual rigorous standards of, of very bad wizards by not having an expert yeah. on something we mentioned off the cuff. If we were going to like talk about it and even have an opinion about it, we normally have an expert. <laughs> Uh, but this time, this I time mean, I'll, I'll read the, the articles though. Obviously, I, I like I'm, I'm very curious. Um, I have friends who are anesthesiologists. Does that count? I haven't talked to them about this. <laughs> is this a guy? Because I just clicked on the link and it's just actually an article. Was this a way for this guy to get his article? <laughs> Was it his article? I, I, I don't know. I mean, look, uh, I, I should just say. Yeah, like, this looks I, like a real article. I trust the anesthesiologist. <laughs> like, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna say. Know. I don't trust big anesthesiology. <laughs> like, mean, like this guy probably, like the little bat signal went off that we were talking, like we exposed their secret. I don't know why it didn't go <laughs> off when Paul Bloom already said this. 
but you know, release the Reddit hounds. What is And this? then they all go like this guy clearly has never listened to an episode before. Like he got, uh, but that like there's a whole web. It's like a Thomas Pynchon novel. It's like a web of anesthesiologists that wait. They all are, commented like shutting down debate, like honest debate and discourse, like Israel Gaza. Uh, they, they they have a secret cabal of anesthesiologists just wipe their memory right all they're like the men in make black me more curious to like <laughs> dig into your dirty secrets anesthesiologists are just like men in black like they just do their shit and then you erase your memory right afterwards exactly <laughs> uh send me that article uh, what does the article say I'm well, so you can go to the Reddit. Page I guess and I click really on the link. <laughs> there are uh, there are great articles on this subject that are comprehensible to a non medical audience. Oh, so no. yeah, definitely a regular listener. <laughs> yeah. yeah, our regular listeners don't call us interlocutors unless they're Jeffrey Watermill. Right. <laughs> even he, he will try to come up with something a little <laughs> even more pretentious. Speaking of which. <sighs> Uh, not pretentious. We love Jeffrey Watermill, but uh, there is a great satire of literary pretension oh, coming up, but also just a great story. The Borges, the Olive, uh, will be the subject of our main segment. But first, first, we're taking a departure from our most recent mockery opening segments. Where, yeah, <laughs> where we can't take another like Reddit comment like that. So <laughs> that's right. I'm not going to mention any areas of expertise. Uh, <laughs> we're doing this is your idea. Top three things we've seen watched this year. So I have my list ready uh, to go, but I'm insecure because uh, I'm not going to be able to match your your, your depth here. I, I was going to like mention a real yeah, a reality show and <laughs> sitcom. <laughs> Is Keanu Reeves going to be involved? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Keanu Reeves memes. Uh, this was just three, the best three things we saw this year. Now, I totally cheated a little bit in mine, but I get it. You're worried that yours is going to be too basic. Exactly. And I'm honestly a little worried that mine is a little too basic because, I don't know, it was a basic year. <laughs> um, it was a great year, but yeah. it was a basic year. Yeah, um, right. And I didn't put stuff that like I happened to watch this year, but that was like old or whatever, because like I've watched some good old movies, but I didn't think that that was in the spirit of what we're saying. So, all right. My first is just Oppenheimer. Like I can't, <laughs> like, is that on your list too? It is on my cheating list. Yeah. Absolutely. It was my favorite experience in a the movie theater this year. Yeah. And I didn't even see it in like the good theater. I saw it in regular old Ithaca theater. Um, yeah, I mean, I love Nolan already, um, but I think that the, the he's just at the top of his craft right now. Like, every there's a lot to say about this movie, but like, visually, storytelling, acting, character, like, even just the cinematography of a bomb <laughs> is like amazing. I, it it also doesn't have some of the things that he can be bad about. I feel like you know, it doesn't have the kind of ponderous exposition, even though you would think this movie would be the perfect like opportunity for the ponderous exposition that he, that, you know, can kind of be annoying in like Inception um, and even like this kind of speechifying in the Batman movies. It doesn't do that at all. It trusts its audience. I guess like Dunkirk did in a way, but it's still very verbal. It just doesn't do the kind of clumsy 
uh, exposition and speech stuff that he can sometimes, you know, I'm not a huge Nolan guy, but that's one of the things that keeps me away from some of his movies. And I'm like, I was amazed at how little of that was in the huh. movie, was in yeah. Oppenheimer. I like, I have never thought of him as being too exposition y. Like, I get what you're saying. Um, but I mean, I, Inception, I, come on. I don't remember. Like, yeah, I don't, I guess. Like, I, what I liked about this is that he avoided what he was falling deeper and deeper into, which was like creating more and more confusing labyrinths that were like just completely rendered like the movie Tenet inscrutable, like probably after three viewings. Um, you know, he can't, uh, obviously Nolan's never going to give you a straight like timeline. Um, he can't, Chronological he, he narrative. can't do that. Yeah. yeah. No. Um, That's fine. But it was fine. I thought it worked really well in this movie. And some of those yeah. performances were just so good. Um, so good. Yeah. I think he's uh, underrated casting, like yeah. Nolan does. Yeah. Florence Pugh. Yeah. I know always good her. to yeah. see her. Always <laughs> really good to see her. Yeah. Matt Damon is, I think, great in it. So and good. the movie needs him when he comes in. It's been like visually amazing and really cool, but just kind of not dreary, but like heading that way. And then I don't, like it's just kind of perfect. Yeah. So all, all throughout. Robert Downey Jr. Robert Downey Jr. is so it. good. Yeah. 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 I, so. Well, I'll, I'll wait until, because this is part of a category okay. that I have. Yeah. <laughs> you have categories. <laughs> All right. Well, it's your turn now. All right. Well, I guess I'll go to that then. Uh, this was the best year for actually feeling like movies in a movie theater have a future that yeah. I can remember in a long time, you know. At the same time that the MCU people were just kind of not, in, not into yeah. it. Like, not for everything, Guardians three or whatever did okay um or did pretty good but like th there, there was just a bunch of them that just kind of bombed They've just and been shitting just, the bed yeah yeah nobody cared like it was just like the the country all of a sudden came to its <laughs> senses uh <laughs> and also i think the movies have gotten worse for sure yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. but also uh, like just too many just even if you just can't maintain that frenetic pace of movie making. Um, like the audience will get weary of it. Yeah. And they don't want to also have to have watched like eight, nine other movies and two <laughs> other TV shows to like appreciate what's That's, going on. It's cute how much you undercounted how many you have to watch. <laughs> Yeah, they've just kind of run out of ideas. It's like Pixar. The new people have, yeah. I think the difference is that Pixar was once really good. Uh, you know, one thing we just saw, The Boy and His Heron, which is... Oh, um, you saw it? Oh, yeah. Man. I was talking to some of my daughter's friends who just saw it, too, and they loved it. Did you like mm -hmm. it? Mm -hmm. Yes. There was a, a, a trailer for Inside Out 2. Oh, no. And there's a new emotion in this one. Oh, no. What, what do you it? think it is? Oh, God. It, nostalgia. No. Contempt. <laughs> no. That would be int more interesting. Also, uh, she's getting older, so you would think maybe like some like shame. lust or shame or... Embarrassment. But yeah, like lust, uh, you know, yeah. I don't know. Tingling. Anxiety. Oh, my God, man. So, <laughs> oh just, my god this is, your ass used to be beautiful what are, you what are you doing anyway yeah i have this whole like cheating category of just movies i saw in the movie theater and absolutely loved this year like spider-man across the spider-verse i thought was great. all right well that's 
that's on my list too. But oh, it is. but it, but it's okay because I have a couple of add-ons that I'm going to talk about when I talk about that. Okay. Well, you can. I'll let you. This is kind of my cheating. This isn't actually on my top three. It's just the category is things that I saw and okay, loved in the, in the movie theater. Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, Oppenheimer. Now, I think that Oppenheimer in we I, I saw it with uh, in IMAX just by myself. I saw it in seventy millimeter IMAX in fucking San Antonio that inexplicably just has one. There's like nineteen in the whole country or something. And do you know that they can only film like fifteen minutes at a time on that format? No. It's it's 70 millimeter IMAX. It's like it's like they're shooting film on eight and a half by 11 sheets of paper. That film is huge. And the machines that make it are actually so loud. The, the movie cameras that do it are so loud that the audio people have issues. It's very hard to get clean audio. Okay. It was actually audio wise, like I thought better than the regular IMAX because it didn't, it was able to modulate uh, mm -hmm. the audio more. It was incredible. We saw it on our way. It was me and my daughter and we were saw, saw it on our way camping out in the area where like the, all that was happening. Um, cool. And it was so cool. And that was like my favorite. That was my favorite experience just because, you know, I'm with my daughter where like, you know, I did see Oppenheimer regular then with my wife. And I don't know if it was just the third time I'm seeing it and it's a three hour movie, uh, but like it didn't seem as good. Like I do mm -hmm. think IMAX matters. And since it's getting a re-release on IMAX places, I recommend listeners go oh, cool. see that. But honestly, one of the maybe the coolest movie theater experience was when I went with my wife to see Stop Making Sense in the theater. They were, they were doing a re-release. It was like a remastered Stop Making oh. Sense, the Talking Heads documentary. I, don't, I have no idea what it is. What is it? Stop making sense. The talking yeah. heads. You you know the talking heads, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's just about the talking heads. I it's thought a you were. No, it's just referring. a concert movie of. Oh the, yeah, yeah. I know what it is. The Jonathan yeah, yeah, Demi. Yeah, yeah. It's you know like one of the if not the best concert documentary of all time. And I'm not like I, I'm a big Talking Heads fan to a degree, but this move this is so good. This is undeniable. Like David Byrne, his he he kind of annoys me. Like I've seen him a few times over <laughs> the last like 10, 15 years. And, but like the talent and the music is just so freaking good. And that the movie is so good. It just works so well. That was probably my favorite. I loved Boy and His Heron. I loved Killers of the Flower Moon. But I but if I'm going to pick like the most like, holy shit, like I never saw this in the theater when I when it came out and I had just seen it on um, DVD, Blu-ray streaming. And it was very cool to see it in the theater. It was awesome. Um. I was confused because when you said Talking Heads documentary, I thought you just meant like a documentary with where like they were interviewing people as Talking oh, right. Heads. <laughs> That's, I guess, understandable. <laughs> if I hadn't said Stop Making Sense already. Yeah. And 1984 was, you know, I was nine, you know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, Cool. Boy and his Heron is great. Also saw it in IMAX because uh, they're releasing it. This is the thing about the fucking Marvel movies not just taking over everything is like they have like I saw Killers of the Flower Moon. I don't think you need to see that in IMAX. It's awesome right in the regular movie theater. But like uh, Boy and his Heron was just in the local IMAX subtitled subtitled oh, boy wow. and his heron in our IMAX that's like 10 minutes from my house in like a strip mall is uh is pretty cool like I, I just like thank god that uh yeah whatever the spell that was cast has been broken <laughs> um 
Well, you haven't even done your one of your real ones, and I've already done one of mine. So you have to give one. That was it. Stop making sense. Oh, stop making sense. I, I thought, chose okay. that. Like Oppenheimer was my favorite experience, but of the best thing that I saw was stop making sense okay, in the cool. theater. Um, yeah. So I was gonna like have Spider Verse as my second one, and like just to say a few things. I'm. I already love animation, but I feel like this year I've been getting just nerding out a little bit more about just the art of animation and appreciating it a little more and the the two spider-man animated movies from sony that they've put out are just like so refreshing they're so creative and visually just stunning and one of the things that i love that they do is they are they bring in elements of traditional 2d animation they blend all these styles together into and, and then of course storytelling because if you don't have storytelling it's not going to have a good movie, no matter how cool the animation. But I, I'm just of the opinion that everybody needs to stop doing comic book movies that are real life. Yeah, uh, <laughs> just been, stick to animation. Just I, I thought I thought this after the first one, like yeah. oh, like. But I, I've told this story, but like we saw the trailer for the Flash. Like, oh my God, that is one of the worst. Yeah, oh, I, just, I haven't watched it. It's, I, it's but, painful. The trailer for it, it's like, and it was right before seeing Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse where uh, it's like so beautiful and like, you know, all these artistic styles from all these different comic books over the last like 30 or 40 years, it just goes into that movie. And and then you see also something that's almost equally animated, but it's just yeah. this CGI fucking bullshit. And it looks horrible. And Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse looks amazing. It's yeah. like, why don't you just do that? Like, just do that. It made a yeah. ton of money. Like, well, I'll tell you one reason. Yeah. Spider-Verse ha has, they put years into that with real animators. And my understanding of that Flash movie is that they were like literally paying, you know, like CGI sweatshop people last minute, which, uh, uh, yeah, gets me to one of the things that I was going to add on to this as a recommendation. There's a documentary about the history of animation called Pencils versus Pixels that came out this year. And it's just great, like it tells the story of essentially from the beginnings, early the Disney studio animation all the way to the the sort of Pixar and the the advent of CG and the the kind of tension that grew around 2D versus 3D computer animation and it interviews a ton of the original artists and like critics Leonard Maltin is still alive and he's in it and yeah. it's very scary to see him <laughs> just he, fair warning he talked he gave a t came to one of my daughter's <laughs> classes at UT oh really yeah she would like yeah. text me do you know Leonard Maltin <laughs> that's awesome yeah. um so pencil versus pixels it's a, a good documentary i recommend it and then there's a youtube channel that i've just like consumed this year i consumed i think everything they've put out it's called the corridor crew and it's a group of cg animators themselves or artists i should say visual effects artists who work in cg who have every week they'll just review good it's called good and bad cg and they'll just point out. So like, that's how I learned about the flash. <laughs> so they'll show clips of like amazing stuff and the, and they'll give like a real educated take on it. Like, um, uh, I was just watching one where they were talking about the abyss, like the, it, the groundbreaking work of, of Cameron on that to, to do those effects at that time. 
um, which by the way just got re-released in 4k like they, they really? transferred it. yeah and these guys also have a series on good and bad animation and they bring in like real big names in hollywood of all like all of the people who are working on these movies behind the scenes and and have them talk about the movies that they've worked on it's just super interesting um so yeah that's, those are my two add-ons pencils versus pixels and the corridor crew Spider-Verse. Uh, yeah Boy and his heron, um, or Boy and the heron, I think it is. Um, although it's not the title in Jap Japan. In uh -huh. Japan, it's How Do You Live, which is a much better title for the movie. <laughs> Visually incredible. Absolutely yeah. incredible. It, the story-wise, if you're going to have an issue, and I want to see it again, but story-wise, maybe there's some you know, problems visually at every moment. I was just in awe. Speaking of just like 2D painted animation yeah. i mean he will go to a little uh cg occasionally but this is also just all the best ghibli animators just fucking yeah. going off from what i understand bringing their own uh twist on things too and it was I, amazing you i just can't wait go to see, see it. to see it and to see the behind the scenes whenever, see it in the theater in the theater if you lived in ithaca you wouldn't be so excited about the theater <laughs> It might be right. It's essentially like I could get a projector in my house. <laughs> we just went. I, we got to pick pretty much whatever like IMAX. Like I know you're like wanted, when you said our local like IMAX. <laughs> it, like it, yeah, it would have been shut down for a while. I thought it was going away forever, and then it just magically appeared again. It was yeah. awesome. I love it. I mean, um, Nolan. People, people like Nolan. They actually put money into this. Like you know. They did. Yeah. He's so good about the theater experience, even when it was a bit of quixotic, like with uh, Tenet in the movie theaters during COVID. <laughs> right. It was like, yeah. here's my like least like accessible movie <laughs> that I'm just. <laughs> you can't even hear what the guy's saying throughout the whole movie. All right. So this category is movies I saw for the first time. But I'm not just going to cheat and list a bunch bunch of them um but i will say probably the best one i saw for the first time is in the mood for love by wong kar wai uh which is frick fucking incredible you would love it too uh you love movies that are like paintings and yeah i don't know that, anything about it like it's really good you would love it um you would even love the kind of you know the quasi story that goes with it but the one i wanted to highlight even though it's more of a movie from last year but i saw it at the beginning of this year and i also kind of promised my daughter who just got her wisdom teeth out or <laughs> three of them out uh, yeah. in a misbegotten does she just have one <laughs> <laughs> anyway after sun uh did you see after sun no. This is a movie that came out kind of late last year. I didn't see it until January, February of this year. It's by the first movie of this director, Charlotte Wells. It has uh, Paul Mezcal, who is like the Gen Z dream. Did you ever see the TV show Normal People? No. Uh, he was one of the stars in that. And it's just him as a very young father. You should definitely see this. And his 13-year-old daughter... Uh, he's clearly like a uh, divorced from or if they ever got married. I don't know if we ever find that out. And he's just on a vacation with his daughter, the two of them in this kind of beach resort. And it's like so beautiful, like just this father daughter. She's about 12, 13 years old. Um, and the girl, Frankie Correo, Correo is like, it's, it's amazing. And like, you would think their interactions are, there's, it's so naturalistic, but also like really like actually kind of surreal. And, and it's just also just one of the most, 
I don't know, you're you're sobbing at the end of this movie if you're human. A father spending time with his 12 or 13 year old daughter is like exactly what we're nostalgic for. Like it's probably exactly. just like <laughs> right. Um, and I, yeah, I, I actually think you would you would love this movie. You should bump it to the top of your list. And if any listeners haven't seen it, people have asked us to do it. And I don't know about that, but it's certainly a movie to watch. Um. Good. Okay. So I, you didn't say it had to be movies. We just yeah. said watched. Yeah. So I am going to, well, there's one I wanted to say, but I'm sure we could both talk about it. Like this, that third season of Righteous Gemstones, I think yeah. it's, it's just such good comedy. So fun. It's just yeah. like, I, I think it's so hard to do good comedy. I think we talked about it in one of our AUAs. Um, uh, to do that kind of comedy where you're kind of satirizing a, yeah. you know, conservative religious um, institution without coming without off being, like a total yeah. smug asshole. Exactly. Like, it's like a miracle. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, the one that I wanted to just put on people's radar, I'm trying to get you to watch it, is the docuseries Welcome to Wrexham, which is uh, about... Uh, Ryan Reynolds and Charles and um, uh, what's his name? Mac McElhaney, Rob McElhaney, Mac Jones, who who <laughs> who bought this uh, Welsh soccer team. Oh uh, yeah, 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 yeah. And it's so there's been two seasons out now. I kind of was like, eh, I'll just watch an episode, and it's just good. It's well done, and it has so much heart because it really is about this town. In this like little, you know, it's like essentially one of these like towns that hasn't had, yeah, they used to be coal mining and then shut down a long time ago. Yeah, exactly. They've had one of the worst runs of luck in in soccer in the UK where they've been relegated, relegated, relegated and haven't been able to claw their way back up. What are they, how far are they from Premier? They're like as far down as you can go and still be pro. So they're like five (laughs) levels down. Wow. Well, at the start of the series. Yeah. So, um, and uh, you you think, and this is what I thought, like, and a, a lot of the townspeople thought these two fucking like Hollywood guys who know shit about soccer are coming in and like, what is this? Like, they're going to abandon us after two years. Like, they were actually sour on the whole thing. And they have to like, yeah. totally understandably. And they understand it. And they have to like, work their way into the hearts of these people. They have to earn it and they really do. And, and it's, it's just a very human story, but it's everything. I think I was telling you, it's everything that's good about sports um, comes out in this. Like it's the power that it has to bring them together. They basically have like the oldest international stadium in the world, which is, (laughs) it looks like the oldest (laughs) in the world. And so they, they put some money toward renovating it and, yeah, you learn about the players. You, it's 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 good. It's, it's like it's Ted very, Lasso, very but you don't want to like blow your brains oh, out while you're watching. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah, it's yeah, with real real people. Oh my god, Ted Lasso. My my penis gets soft whenever like that word, Ted Lasso. <laughs> Do you remember having to like during sex like think of something like Ted Lasso? Like, <laughs> yes. <laughs> those were the days. <laughs> there's a Seinfeld episode where George goes he goes "Uh, what happened I went from finishing way too fast and not being able to finish it all where was the sweet spot (laughs) (laughs) 
All right, that's my list. All right, this completes it, but I want to be clear. This isn't my favorite thing that I saw. My favorite thing that I saw is all the ones in the movie theater. Um, And I just loved this year for movie theaters and like i like i'm not sure if like the movies are better than last year but the theater going experience was way better and like people are all going to it every time i saw oppenheimer it was fucking packed yeah uh three times like i saw it like two months after it came out uh and it was still packed like thank god i just i'm so happy but i had to christen my new system my new i was gonna say movie uh palace my movie palace that we just kind of finished and it's kind of the soundproof room for recording this stuff and a nice big oled tv and a, and a good sound bar and the movie that like i feel like was the first movie i get you know why you want this kind of setup was the lighthouse um, the Robert Eggers movie, The Lighthouse, with Robert Pattinson and Willem Dafoe. And it's just visually incredible. It's black and white. It's in this kind of aspect ratio that's really boxy, like 1.19, I think, to 1. And, um, you know, the thing about these, like, uh, OLED-style TVs is the blacks. That's what everybody yeah. says. And this movie just brings that out. And also the sound of it is incredible. And... It was, I don't know, like I watched it, I took like time from grading. It's like a big contrast to just go and watch it. Like we don't even have a couch yet, so I sat on the floor and just watched uh, the lighthouse on this Blu-ray that I have of it, and it was fucking phenomenal. Like it was amazing. That's... And it's a great movie. We could we could actually do it. Um, it's been definitely requested a few times. Have you seen it? No. Is really freaking good, and I'm great. I'll always be grateful to it because I will remember that it is the first time I got like a good experience with this new system that we have. Yeah, you know, like what I've, was... I've been looking forward to forever. That's great. It's uh, it's awesome that you finally got it. I wanted to ask you. I think I texted you this, but got lost in the. What was the very first DV or like movie you put on? So my wife and I watched until she fell asleep, which she typically does, uh, Inherent <laughs> Vice, you know, the, yeah. the PTA movie, which I love. And what I realized only later was we put on the DVD of it. Like, it, it's one of those Blu-rays that uh, comes with the DVD and the Blu-ray. Uh, and I thought uh, yeah. I was putting in, like, the actual thing. But I, I – so, like, I was like, this is great. I love it. You know, it is. It's just cool to see, uh, you know, on a big screen in a, you know, bigger screen than I'm used to in a uh, – in a dark room, but like, I was like, I, I don't feel blown away, you know, like, and right. then I realized it was a DVD. So I don't know. <laughs> I, we haven't watched the Blu-ray plus she fell asleep halfway in, but then I put on the lighthouse when it was just me. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And, yeah. That's an underrated PTA movie. I think it's awesome. It's, it's, it's sort of crimin- criminally like panned. Even the, the, I, I don't think it was panned. I think <clears throat> no, no, for a PTA it. movie, it's yeah. like at the bottom of the PTA lists that people. People to be fair, I don't know bottom. what I would put it. Like, I don't know what I would put at the bottom. I, I mean, I would put most of the yeah. below. I love, I love it. Uh, it's like Boogie Nights and uh, what's it called? There will be blood. Are the only ones I think are definitely better. Anything else? I, I, I think it stands up. Uh, licorice pizza is is I love uh, licorice pizza though. Yeah. But it's as good as licorice pizza. Yeah. All right. All right. Good year. And now. We're going to talk about one of the best things that we read this yeah, year. So good. Uh, we'll be right back to talk about Borges the Olive.
This episode of Very Bad Wizards is brought to you once again by GiveWell. You know, there are over 1.5 million nonprofit organizations in the United States and millions more around the world. When it comes time to decide who to donate your money to, how do you know which ones could make the biggest impact with that donation? Well, GiveWell was founded to help donors answer just that question. They pour over independent studies and charity data to help donors direct their funds to evidence-backed organizations that are saving and improving lives. GiveWell has done this for over 15 years. They've researched charitable organizations, and they only direct their funding to a few of the highest impact opportunities they've found in global health and poverty alleviation. Over 100,000 donors have used GiveWell to donate more than $1 billion. Rigorous evidence suggests that these donations will save over 150,000 lives and improve the lives of millions more. GiveWell wants as many donors as possible to make informed decisions about high-impact giving so you can find all of their nerdy spreadsheet research and recommendations on their site for free. Yep, they are that kind of organization. They want you to, even if you don't use them, they want you to have that research available to you for free. You don't even have to sign up. You can make tax-deductible donations to their recommended funds or charities, and GiveWell won't even take a cut. So if you've never donated through GiveWell before, you can have your donation matched up to $100 before the end of the year, or as long as matching funds last. To claim your match, go to givewell.org and pick podcast and enter Very Bad Wizards at checkout. Make sure they know that you heard about GiveWell from Very Bad Wizards to get your donation match. Again, that's givewell.org to donate or just to find out more. Our thanks to GiveWell for sponsoring this episode of Very Bad Wizards. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. This is the time where we love to thank all of the people who get in touch with us, who interact with us. Uh, if you want to email us, you can email us at verybadwizards at gmail.com. Tweet at us at peas at Tamler or at very bad wizards. You can follow us on Instagram, like us on Facebook, join the Reddit community where they have lively discussions of every episode, plus a lot of other things and subscribe to us on Spotify. And if you could rate us on Apple podcasts, those five star reviews are huge for connecting us with listeners who don't know about the show, but might like it. We really this is the end of the year. I always get a little sentimental at the end of the year, and I just want to thank all the people who reach out because it's awesome. We're, we can't believe it.
that you want to spend the time not just listening, but also engaging. Uh, thank you. If you'd like to support us in even more tangible ways, they are all available on the support page on our website, verybadwizards.com. Give us a one-time or recurring donation on PayPal. You can do that. Buy some swag and, of course, become one of our beloved Patreon supporters. And we have a bunch of different tiers. One dollar and up, you get ad-free episodes and also all seven volumes of David's Beats. $2 and up per episode, you get access to our whole archive, seven to eight years, nine years, I don't know, of bonus episodes on movies, shows. We did one on ghosts, a couple on Star Trek that David did, and I think I even joined one of them. And of course, The Ambulators, where David and I break down every episode of Deadwood Every episode of the first two seasons of Deadwood, that's what we've completed. And look, this it, it honestly embarrasses me to say this. It's clearly the best work that we've ever done, the best audio work that David and I have ever done. Some people are calling it the best thing that mankind has ever produced. And honestly, I just, like, I'm humbled by that. I find it embarrassing, but I'm deeply humbled that people think that the ambulators is the best that man human beings uh have to offer you know pre-ai pre the ai takeover we are about to start season three we're gearing up for it and we've got a little more time i think this upcoming semester so stay tuned for season three i'm sure we'll get the first one out in january also in overton windows which we have recorded but i still haven't edited I remember it being kind of a beast, but that will come out within the next few weeks. Uh, so that's at $2 and up per episode of $5 and up. You get access to the maybe the second best thing that, again, people are saying, I would never say this. People are saying the second best thing that human beings have offered the world are Brothers Karamazov, five-episode series. Finally, at $10 and up per episode, you get to ask us a question in our monthly Ask Us Anything episodes. You can ask us a question, and then everybody at our bonus tier gets to hear the episode. And uh, at the $10 level, you can also, if you would want this, and I don't know why you would, you can also see a video of us answering these questions. There's a lot going on, but really this is all our way of trying to thank our listeners who support us. And from the bottom of my heart, Happy New Year, and thank you so much for all of your support. Okay, now we're going to talk about Jorge Luis Borges, short story, <laughs> The Aleph, which is a story that we just sort of put off doing. I think like you, you at first weren't into it for some reason. No clue why. Like as soon as I reread it, because you suggested it again, I was like, this story is awesome. Every part of it. <laughs> it's awesome. Yeah. It is a, I think a quintessential, I mean, it's a classic. I think it's probably one of his most beloved stories. Um, it was originally published in 1945 in, in a, just a, a journal and um and then published in a in a collection of his stories named lf in 1949 and i think that we just are going to walk through everything because everything really is connected to the plot and the details but it hits on so many different themes themes that we've hit on in various borges stories themes about infinity and paradoxes and labyrinths labyrinths revenge and mysticism which is, of course, my, one yeah. of my favorite Yeah, and the inability of language to describe yeah. things that are outside of language. Also, memory and the problems and memory. with memory. And time, the passage of time. I also love his stories where he's a character. I know. And it's just a kind of 
I don't know, self-satirical version of him. <laughs> and then I just love this, his description of his interactions with Carlos Argentinos. There's so much to love in this. Like you could not get into the thought experimenty, metaphysical philosophy of language part of it and still just fully enjoy this story with the philosophical questions that underlie the kind of satire of a certain kind of literary pretension just all are part of the same issue and (laughs) like that's what's so brilliant and you know why he's the best he's the best at writing this kind of story god i just want to like yeah as you pointed out on a text to me like this is just one of his funniest stories like the satire is just i was actually laughing (laughs) as i was reading it the one that it reminded me of of his is the quixote one satirizing a certain kind of literary pretension of <laughs> voice you know like i associate that with nabokov like somerset mom like tolstoy can do this it's just so funny what he, like i have a few passages that yeah read for sure for sure and i i also just love like you were saying when he inserts himself like he is the some version of him as the narrator and i feel like he he's a He's self-critical, like he uses this to sort of criticize himself a little bit. Um, Absolutely. So this is a part. This is something that I don't. I don't know how it will come up uh, in in the discussing the story. I couldn't help but think I couldn't find anything about this. But the the uh, character that he is interacting with, as you say, Carlos Argentino. I couldn't help but think that he chose the last name Argentino in this just like on the nose way of criticizing Argentinian intellectuals of the time. Yeah. <laughs> like That's, I it was had to that. be I, like, I know I couldn't find anything on it, but it has to be that. Like, yeah. uh, oh, last general thing I want to say it's, it's actually kind of a beautiful, poignant love, like yeah. lost love story too, yeah. which you don't get that often from you a don't. Borges story. Right. Yeah. It's his stories are so lacking in, sex or love like any of any sort interactions with the opposite sex (laughs) yeah uh not a lot of women no doesn't pass the bechdel test (laughs) definitely (laughs) not in this one either not not in this one uh so all right it starts off so it's first person narration um with borges telling us about the morning that this woman uh beatrice viterbo um had died and we come to find out that it's somebody that he like clearly was in love with. Yeah. Um, it, he was devoted to her. And he says, I knew that more than once my futile devotion had exasperated her. So it seemed like unrequited, um, kind of in a, in a heartbreaking way. And we learned that since her death in, I think, 1929 or something, yeah. he every year on her birthday shows up to her house. He, he sort of says that every year he'll stay a little longer and get there a little later. He sort of gets gets himself invited to dinner. And then every year he has dinner with the, the first cousin, Carlos Argentino, who lives in the house that, that Beatrice once lived in. You get from the very beginning that he's not doing it to hang out with Carlos Argentino. No. Uh, in fact, that's a price for paying homage to the memory of this person who... He already feels like is fading away. There's a line early on. I noticed a new advertisement for some cigarettes or other blondes, I believe there were. The fact deeply grieved me for I realized that the vast unceasing universe was already growing away from her 
and this change was but the first in an infinite series. The universe may change, but I shall not, thought I, with melancholy vanity. That's like already kind of stating the themes and like a central issue in the story right there. You know, the universe is moving away from this person that was so special to Borges's heart and there's nothing he can do about it. It's just going to keep eroding like that. Yeah. And I've had this thought actually about when people die that that the world moves on and it does move on so fast. And I, I often think about how people who I loved who are dead, like just didn't see like this or that happen. The, the world is, as, as Jesus Christ said, it's the, it's the world is for the living. You just can't hold on. No matter how hard you try, um, the memory will fade and the universe moves on. And there's something so sad about that. Borges says later on, something that I'm going to quote now, after 40, every change becomes a hateful symbol of time's passing. <laughs> it's so good. Oh, my God. I, like, I wrote that down on an index card. <laughs> it's so true. So, so okay, he's showing up every day, I mean, every year on April 30th. And you do get the sense, you know, this was a time when pictures were rare, but like, obviously this was a family of means. And so he goes and he just like stares at the various portraits on the wall. Um, yeah. And here's where we learn just some basic facts about her life that she was married and then divorced. And you get the sense that like, he's just been pining for her love this whole time. And so it must hurt him to, to have seen her get married. And then he had some hope when she got divorced and then like it never panned out and then she died. He describes Beatrice as tall, fragile, very slightly stooped. In her walk, there was, if I may be pardoned, uh, the oxymoron, something of a graceful clumsiness, a sousson of hesitancy or of palsy. Like, that line is like the kind of line that he's going to go on to make fun of uh, <laughs> Carlos Argentinos uh, uh, for, for saying. And like this is part of the self-satire, I think, yeah. is that even though he clearly feels this connection and like he wants to describe this kind of ineffable way that she walked, he has to do it in this kind of pretentious, labored way. That will be his exact kind of criticism of uh, Carlos Argentino, but he's already doing it right, right. away. Right. Um, it's also funny that he says he asks forgiveness for the oxymoron in her description. And then he describes Carlos as holding a position in an illegible library. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> and then an authoritarian who's ineffectual. Yeah. And then he says that nights and holidays, he stayed at home. <laughs> like all sort of contradictory. Like uh, I like uh, that he is authoritarian, though also ineffectual. ineffectual. I, I also like I, I feel like that's kind of an oxymoron, but also not like I, I know, feel like yeah, I know yeah, people who are that. It's it's totally true. They're authoritarian in spirit, but they just don't have it in them to actually get shit enforce done. anything. Yeah. The first thing that we hear him say is when he takes him some brandy, some cognac, he sniff he tastes it and he says, Interesting. <laughs> and then he goes on to describe he says he launched into an apologia for modern man. I picture him, he said, with an animation that was rather unaccountable. In his study, as though in the watchtower of a great city surrounded by telephones, telegraphs, phonographs, the latest in-radio telephone and motion picture and magic lantern equipment and glossaries and calendars and timetables and bulletins. He observed that for a man so equipped, the act of traveling was supererogatory. This 20th century of ours had upended the fable of Muhammad in the mountain. Mountains nowadays did in fact come to the modern Muhammad. What's funny 
is that it's like one of the most pretentious things to so insufferable to, yeah. To, yeah to possibly conceive of but it's also kind of true for him <laughs> I know like this is a, a, a like a like a running theme with like his ridiculous pomposity is that like actually it's like yes the in this case the mountain did come to Muhammad it came to his basement you yeah, know like, right uh, and so and, and like a lot of this he's stuff, talking about modernity, which is also true. So he, he tells him that he's writing this poem called The Earth, um, <laughs> yeah. which is a description of our own terraqueous orb and was graced, of course, with the picturesque digression and elegant apostrophe. I don't know if I'm pronouncing apostrophe. <laughs> well, I think it's apostrophe the way he oh. means it in poetry, but I am not sure. <laughs> So I like, yeah, I no make fun of me on Twitter. Or whatever. No, no, I'm the one who needs to be made fun of now. I just read it as apostrophe. <laughs> You're the English well, what, major. What would it mean, apostrophe, like in the context of that sentence? I have zero idea, but that's also true of a lot of the things that are said in this. Um, <laughs> it's true. Uh, <laughs> uh, in Greek tra tragedies, you'll this is the only reason I know it, is yeah, okay. that like you'll sometimes see uh, apostrophe or apostrophe. Um, uh, the first passage of the poem that he reads is I have seen as did the Greek man's cities and his fame the works the days of various light the hunger I prettify no fact I falsify no name for the voyage I narrate is autour de ma, de ma chambre so you think this is the the most insufferably pretentious but as you read the rest of the story and as you come to understand like what prompted this, it's also true. And the voyage is yeah. uh, like outside his room, right? Like yeah. it just it's just true. He's just finding the the language that he's using to describe it. Yeah, and so absolutely. it's already a signal that we're not going to be able to describe what this is um, with any real accuracy. And we and can do it in stylish ways or not stylish ways, but it, it's we're already fucked from the get go. Yeah. And, you know, upon reflection, it's it is a, a bit of an unreliable narrator again, too, because um, we everything that's described about this guy sounds so pompous. So he, he goes on. So those four lines that he gives him from his poem, he goes on to like a long paragraph sort of describing how awesome each line is because of, of what the, the meaning the stanza that i read <laughs> the stanza that you're yeah <laughs> he says a stanza interesting from every point of view <laughs> which just that, point again like a lot of this story like every point of view is kind of interesting because that's what we're going to get with the olive right yeah, yeah. So, yeah, he gives, I won't read the, the whole paragraph. No, read the he, whole thing. Oh, it's so funny. Okay. <laughs> a stanza interesting from every point of view, he said. The first line wins the kudos of the learned, the academician, the Hellenist, though perhaps not that of those would-be scholars that make up such a substantial portion of popular opinion. The second moves from Homer to Hesiod. Is that how you say it? Hesiod. Implicit homage at the very threshold of the dazzling new edifice to the father of didactic poetry, not without revitalizing a technique whose lineage may be traced to scripture, that is, enumeration, conjuries, or conglobation. The third, Baroque, decadent, the purified and <laughs> fanatical cult of form, consists of twinned hemistics. The fourth, unabashedly bilingual. <laughs> unabashedly. Voyage. An auteur de ma chambre. <laughs> An auteur de ma chambre. Unabashedly, unabashedly. bilingual. It's just so uh, awesome. 
<laughs> assures me the unconditional support of every spirit able to feel the ample attractions of playfulness. I shall say nothing of the unusual rhyme, <laughs> nor of the erudition that allows me, without pedantry or boorishness, to include within the space of four lines three erudite allusions spanning 30, 30 centuries of dense literature from first the Odyssey, second the works and days, and third that immortal bagatelle that regales us with the diversions of the Savoyard's plume. Once again, I show my awareness that truly modern art demands the balm of laughter of scherzo there is no doubt about it goldoni was right that's just <laughs> so as good gold, a comic gold. there is no doubt i love the way it ends too there's no doubt about it goldoni was right it's so yeah. perfect i don't know who goldoni like i don't get the I reference. have no idea who that is either but the line that he says is such a great line he says i realized that the poet's work had lain not in the poetry but in the invention of reasons for accounting the poetry admirable I think that's a key line in this. Yeah, like I it's... without even fully understanding why I feel like that the poet's work had laid not in the poetry but in the invention of reasons for accounting the poetry admirable. That's the thing that like is going to be the problem with the Aleph too. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hadn't thought about it that way. Like, I um, do think a lot of these lines that are also satirical and just really funny, like this is what I think is incredible about the story, just connect to the the philosophical themes and questions that are animating it. This is the thing. He's going to also have uh, like he's going to realize the impossibility of trying to describe what he saw and he'll do it in a different way. He will yeah, try to do it. Very different way. Yeah. yeah. I, which um, I really want to talk about when we yeah, get there. Like, yeah. yeah. Um. And just to be clear, Carlos Argentino's task that he set for himself is literally to describe the entire world in poetry. He proposed to versify, this is Borges says, he proposed to versify the entire planet. By 1941, he had already dispatched several hectares of the state of Queensland, more than a kilometer of the course of the Ob, a gasworks north of Veracruz, the leading commercial establishments in the parish of Concepcion, Mariana Cambaceres de Alvear's villa on Calle Onte de Septiembre en Belgrano, and a Turkish bath not far from the famed Brighton Aquarium. And this is a theme in, in Borges too, people who are trying somehow to catalog the entirety of reality. It kind of comes up in Funes, where Funes is is remembering every detail, so he can't abstract things into generalities, but like he remembers you know, the dog facing front at 315 is different than the dog facing sideways, like different things. So his task is completely a different level of infinity. But this is also a task that is a fool's task that nobody in their right mind would think could be done, but he sets about doing it himself. Pierre Menard is kind of like that too. Like the attempt to recreate perfectly the entirety of, of the Quixote. Like, yeah, or like Library of Babel, those people who are aiming to find the true book, yeah. the book that explains the Library of Babel. It's like yeah. you're trying to figure out something that in principle can't be done because of the nature of the thing that you're yeah. looking for or, or trying to do. Yeah, it's such a yeah, it's such that vibe that there are things that humans set about trying to do that are so futile that he's he's using these like ridiculous tasks that make like counting the, the, you know, the sands, the grains of sand on a beach seem like a reasonable thing to do. Um, and it just seems like he's saying something deep about the follies of the things that we endeavor to do in our lives. So that's his task to describe the entirety of the earth in, in poetic stanzas. Hear this, 
to the right hand of the routine signpost. Coming, what need is there to say, from north-northwest, yawns a bored skeleton. Color? Sky pearly. Outside the sheepfold that suggests an ossuary. So he's just descri- literally describing random spots on the globe as if he had like Google's two audacious risks, he exclaimed in exultation, snatched from the jaws of disaster. I can hear you mutter by success. I admit it. I admit it. One, the epithet. He admits root- that it was a success. Uh, <laughs> he admits, not he's like putting the, the words into his disaster. mouth. Yeah. <laughs> One, the epithet routine, while making an adjective of a synonym for highway, nods en passant to the inevitable tedium inherent to those chores of a pastoral and rustic nature that neither Georgics nor our own belaureled Don Segundo ever dared acknowledge in such a forthright way with no beating about the bush. And the second, delicately referring to the first, the forcefully prosaic phrase, yawns a bored skeleton, which the finicky, finicky will want to excommunicate without benefit of clergy, but that the critic of more manly tastes will embrace as he does his very life. The thing where he's already like shitting on his critics, like his imaginary <laughs> critics, because he's not published anything is very funny. And the idea and the man, his more manly critics. This reminds me so much of Pale Fire. I remember this with the Quixote story. This reminds me so much of Nabokov's Pale Fire. It's that same voice who... Preempting the critic. Preempting the critic, (laughs) exactly. And already kind of coming up with reasons why their uh, dismissal of his work is... uh, I'll say, Tamler, I know that some listeners will think our Borges uh, episodes are too rambly, but the more manly of our listeners will appreciate... (laughs) Of more manly, the listeners of more manly tastes. Yeah. And then he gets a phone call a couple weeks later um, from from Carlos Argentino, inviting him to go try out a new cafe that his landlords or businessmen have opened up. And um, so he he goes in this discussion. He realizes that what the reason for the invitation might be that he's asking Borges, who is, again, Borges in this story. So he's a writer. Um, he's asking Borges maybe to be the one to write a prologue. He says, it was at this point that I understood the unprecedented telephone call and the invitation. <laughs> the man was about to ask me to write the preface to a pedantic farrago of his. <laughs> But my fear turned out to be unfounded. Carlos Argentino remarked with grudging admiration that he believed he did not go too far in saying that the prestige achieved in every sphere by the man of letters Alvaro Melian Lefinor, 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 was solid, and that if I could be persuaded to persuade him, <laughs> Alvaro might be enchanted to write uh, the the called for forward. So he so first he he shits on the forward, then. Borges is thinking, oh, fuck me. He's going (laughs) to ask me to write the foreword or the preface. And then, no, like he just wants him to be like a go-between. That's just very funny. I can relate to that. I've been that person who who has thought, oh, my God, they're going to ask me to do something because they think it'll like (laughs) further their career. But they're not doing that at all. They're just asking me to use some connection I have. They're like, can I get Sam Harris's email? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, can can you tell Lori Santos I want to invite her to Davos? <laughs> yeah, I want to. Go with, I, want it, uh, I just need twenty minutes with her at Davos. <laughs> this show is sponsored by BetterHelp. 
Man, it's the end of the year, holiday season. I'm just getting over Thanksgiving. It was great, but let's just say that there are certain issues that me and my family feel strongly about right now that we don't see eye to eye on. And now we're coming up to Christmas. We're, we're, we're in Hanukkah right now. And it's just natural to feel sadness or anxiety about this. But adding something new, adding something positive to your life can help to counteract some of those feelings or even help to understand those feelings. Therapy can be a bright spot amid all of the stress and change, something to look forward to, something to make you feel grounded and to give you the tools to manage everything that's going on. I know so many people who have benefited from therapy, whether it's learning positive coping skills, developing better habits, how to set boundaries. Therapy can empower you to be the best version of yourself, or at least a much better version of yourself. I could be a better version of myself. Who among us couldn't use to be a better version of themselves? So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. All you have to do is fill out a brief questionnaire and get matched with a licensed therapist. You can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. So find your bright spot this season with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash VBW to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash VBW. Thanks to BetterHelp, as always, for sponsoring this episode. So, okay, so then then Borges does this thing that, that I could totally relate to, where he's like, fuck, now I got to, like, ask this guy that he asked me uh, to, to get to do the forward. And he's like, I had two options. One was to like find this way of telling this guy, like this guy wrote a shitty poem and he's asking me to like ask you to do the forward or I could just never bring it up to him at all. And he's like, I knew that I was going to do that, that latter one, which is totally what I would do. <laughs> just ignore it. Look, I have this literally written. I don't know if you can see it, but I have <laughs> like Pizarro written <laughs> on that, like right under that line. <laughs> it's so true (laughs) i knew that you would read that and feel like oh that's me i'm exposed i totally passive aggressively will just like not just avoid it just not not do it uh it's so funny uh later borges again this is very funny very self-satirical i can relate to this too like every time the phone rings he thinks oh shit he's gonna be mad at me asking me about whether i talk to uh the other poet and meanwhile that never happens then he does call though and those same landlords who opened that good cafe that the great cafe that he was praising they now want to demolish the house and here's where that line that you quoted earlier after 40 every change becomes a hateful symbol of times passing um but yeah like they're going to demolish the house he says after that in addition this was the house that i saw as alluding infinitely to beatrice and obviously that's a kind of meaningful line and here's where we first find out about the olive he says the olive is in my basement and I need it to finish my poem and they can't take that away from me. The place where without admixture or confusion, 
all the places of the world seen from every angle coexist. I revealed my discovery when he was a child to no one, but I did return. The child could not understand that he was given that privilege so that the man might carve out a poem. And so now we know the origin story of this poem. Uh, he has a lawyer named Zuni. Zunino and Zungri shall never take it from me. Never, never. Law book in hand, Zuni will prove that my Aleph is inalienable. Yeah. And I feel like that's important, for, but I don't totally get why. But uh, law book in hand, Zuni, Zuni will prove that my Aleph is inalienable. Uh, one of the things I was thinking was like these landlords, Zunino and Zungri, so weird that they both have Z names. And I thought, well, it is maybe on purpose. Aleph is the first letter of the alphabet. Yeah. I don't know what Zuni, the lawyer, <laughs> like why there's a third Z. It's like, just all Zs that are yeah, involved all, in this. All yeah. I love at this point. By the way, this is the point. I remember, you know, this this is the point where you're reading this. And you're like, what the fuck? Like there's <laughs> this this guy thinks that there is a like like a point in his basement that contains all of the world. Yeah, it was a uh, it was a comedy of manners and a uh, satire of the literary culture of Argentina yeah. in the late 30s or early 40s. And then all of a sudden, wait, what's going on? It's a Borges yeah. story. It's a Borges story. It's and Borges the character has this all of a sudden shit falls into place for him. He's like, oh fuck this guy's actually crazy. Yeah. And he's like, it makes, it makes sense now. Um, right. Which is interesting that that's yeah. his first, th first thought. Totally. I mean, it makes sense, but yeah. it's kind of interesting uh, given what comes later. Yeah. Yeah. And then he says, maybe all of the Viterbos, which is the family name, in including Beatrice, um, might've been crazy. So he says, even though she was a woman, a girl of implacable clear-sightedness, but there were things about her, oversights, distractions, moments of contempt, downright cruelty that perhaps could have done with a pathological explanation. So maybe there's madness running in the family. It's Carlos Argentino's madness. But I think filled. that's also, he's saying that to explain the fact that she never loved him like For he sure. loved her. Yeah. You know? He is he is justifying, yeah. It's it's given him a, an explanation for he doesn't buy it. Pain. I don't even think he buys it as as he's saying it. Uh, right before he says that, he for all he thinks of him being crazy, he goes right over. I love it. He says he says I'll be there and hangs up. So before he, before the guy can like stop him from going, yeah. he says like I'm gonna go. Um, yeah, and he's getting he's getting some sort of pleasure in the thought that this guy's batshit, and that Beatrice is. Uh is bad shit which you know it's a very ugly kind of thing to think yeah. at that point i think for this character carlos argentino's madness filled me with malign happiness deep down we had always detested one another that's your don draper line i think right i don't think that carlos argentino uh, yeah. i don't think he detested borges like i don't there's no evidence of that in the story Yet it's an interesting Borges. The character is telling on himself as a petty person. Um, yeah, he seems throughout. small in yeah. this story. So he go, he runs over to the house, and of course he is observing all of the portraits, the pictures of her. Um, he says, uh, 
the beside the flowerless vase atop the useless piano smiled the great faded photograph of Beatrice. Not so much anachronistic as outside time. No yeah. one could see us. In a desperation of tenderness, I approached the portrait. And then what you yeah. said. And it's like, that's, uh, you know, that's it's a faded photograph. It's... Uh, a useless piano. It's like all this stuff is just receding from yeah. him and he's grasping at it and he can't, uh, he can't keep it, you know? Yeah. What is pseudo cognac? Hey, you have any idea? Yeah. <laughs> it was like, it was like near beer, but for cognac. <laughs> is it like non-alcoholic cognac? I have no idea. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so, so when Carlos comes in, he says, let's have a glass of pseudo cognac and I'll take you down to the basement and, and show you the Aleph. You got to lie on the floor in this particular way. You got to stare at the 19th step of the stairway that you just went down and I'll like go back up and I'll shut the door like for the darkness. And, uh, within a few minutes, you'll see the, uh, the Aleph. The microcosm of the alchemists and Kabbalists, our proverbial friend, the multum in parvo made flesh. Like, Much and little. Yeah. Also, just to set the scene, like he's going down into a basement, which is has one of those staircases that just kind of pop up, you know, oh, and yeah, he's going right. to pull it up. That's right. It's like a fucking horror movie. And Dude, that's his becomes... first thought. Uh, yeah. that like, oh, my God, he's going to kill me. Like he's putting becomes, me in the basement. Uh, an Edgar Allan Poe story right there. Yeah. You know, totally. it's like the cask of Amontillado. Like yeah. this guy has, has hated me. And like, this is exactly how he's going to off me. But then he sees it. And he says, I come now to the ineffable center of my tale. It is here that a writer's hopelessness begins. Every language is an alphabet of symbols. The employment of which assumes a past shared by its interlocutors. How can one transmit to the other, to others, the infinite Aleph, which my timorous memory can scarcely contain. In a similar situation, mystics have employed a wealth of emblems to signify the deity. A Persian mystic speaks of a bird that somehow is all birds. Alain de Lille speaks of a sphere whose center is everywhere and circumference nowhere. Ezekiel of an angel with four faces facing east and west, north and south at once. It is not for nothing that I call to mind these inconceivable analogies. They bear a relation to the Aleph. Already there is, is this thing that contains the infinite all at once. Yeah, and simultaneous. Yeah. Simultaneous. That's that's uh, obviously crucial here. And mystics have been trying to describe it with symbols, but they all are lacking in yeah. some respect because yeah. this is something that symbols can only point to. This is the fundamental problem of any kind of mystical or transcendent tradition of inquiry is okay you get it what are you supposed to do yeah. and not only in terms of describing it to other people but in terms of even trying to understand it yourself so then besides the central problem the enumeration even partial enumeration of infinity is irresolvable um I saw millions in that unbounded moment. I saw millions of delightful and horrible acts. None amazed me so much as the fact that all occupied the same point without superposition and without transparency. Somehow his senses are allowing the influx of all of that to come in and he is grasping it in the moment. And then he's, he has to set himself to trying his best to describe what he saw. Um, he says something of it. I will capture. 
lang because language is successive and what he saw was not. You're already fucked. So he's already yep. giving all the limits of, you know, with the mystical traditions and the symbols and the fact that you have language having the feature of being successive. Um, whereas what he saw was simultaneous. This is a uh, fool's errand. This is quixotic. Yeah. But he I does love it. I love this description that he gives because he's he's. And this is the juxtaposition that you have with this guy who is trying to use language, Carlos Argentino, who's trying to use the language to systematically describe everything he sees in this like poetic stanzas that are going to be like, you know, thousands of, of, of stanzas to to like lay everything out. And Borges is trying to just give us a flavor, like some vague sense of the phenomenology. And he does it just by describing the Aleph, what it looked like, and then a whole bunch of random scenes that came simultaneously into his senses. He says, uh, I, under the step, I saw a small iridescent sphere of almost unbearable brightness. At first, I thought it was spinning. Then I realized that the movement was an illusion produced by the dizzying spectacles inside it. He saw yeah, a woman in Inverness whom I shall never forget, saw her violent hair, her haughty body, saw a cancer in her breast, saw a circle of dry soil within a sidewalk where there had once been a tree, saw a country home in Androge, yeah, saw all the ants on the earth. So it's all, what he's seeing is the earth right now, right? He doesn't yeah. see things from the past or the future. He right. just sees everything at once right now. <clears throat> yeah. Here. He saw a tarot card in a shop window in Mirzapur, which reminded me of, uh, of Blood Meridian. <laughs> he also sees uh, detailed letters, because I guess these letters still exist, that Beatrice oh. had sent. He said obs obscene, incredible detailed letters that Beatrice had sent Carlos Argentino. Uh, were yeah. they? Is that totally. how you? Uh, yes, they were first cousins. Uh, but this is—he's bearing the lead here. Like this yeah. is clearly one of the the most important things to him, and he just lists it among all of the other innumerable things. But like, yeah, Beatrice was like having some sort of nasty affair with <laughs> not even Arcan step cousin, Argentina. just not even. actual cousin, <laughs> not even actually. <laughs> um, it's uh, all just one sentence we should say too which is uh, yeah. another feature of what he's trying to do how he's trying to do it like how he's trying to capture the simultaneity of it is by making it like one long sentence in the page of dense text but peeking out of the randomness is certain things like that yeah. that kind of explain his particular focus and that's what yeah. the paradox of this of this olive is is that you see everything and no, nothing has more importance than anything else that you see but when you write about it it's hard not to right, uh, right. import your own totally cares and values and and attitudes and desires on what it is that that you've seen like he could have chosen the, anything and he chose those letters and her rotting remains after the letter yeah he says a beloved monument in chacarita which is a cemetery in in buenos aires saw the horrendous remains of what had once deliciously been beatriz viterbo um yeah no I totally process right. that until now just oh that's why he hates mm. carlos argentino yeah. it's 
the view from nowhere, truly the view from nowhere. It's it's a standing on an external plane of existence and and seeing everything that's happening on Earth simultaneously. But just like you like there, just like it reminds me of our discussion of the veil of ignorance, where you can't you can't actually <laughs> process all of that stuff without imputing something of your own mind onto it. So so but there's two questions: Can you process it and if you do process it, can you describe, describe what it, it is that you yeah. processed? And I think yeah. this is definitely saying no to the second question. Not sure what it says about the first question. It does. Yeah, it does seem you're right. Like, and, and that's like, would be the difference between per perception and memory, I guess. And, and it may be the case that it, do, it really does seem that his description is that like he processed it all. Um, and he says, I had a sense of infinite veneration, infinite pity. Um, he had truly looked upon the inconceivable universe. But then once you start the process of memory. So I think yeah. those are two separate things, but I think they're connected in the sense that once you're not experiencing it anymore, you might just be in the same kind of condition as if you tried to explain it to somebody else, trying to even remember it and uh, make sense of it to yourself. It's like a it's it's like a dream that fades so quickly when you wake up and you're trying to like yeah. hold on to it. You're trying to grasp like, it. Yes. Yeah. You could just feel it leaving you um, as you're trying. Um, In this case, yeah. he's ambivalent about whether he wants it to leave or not, because he says. I feared there was nothing that had the power to surprise or astonish me anymore. I feared that I would never again be without a sense of deja vu. Uh, fortunately, after a few unsleeping nights, forgetfulness began to work in me again. So he's yeah. got the re the reverse curse of Funes, like he that yeah. that. But it's actually a blessing in this case. It allows him to not be in this kind of middle state of having knowing that you experience something transcendent but not and, and not being able to let that go but then forgetfulness and yeah uh, and it's over yeah and and it wouldn't hurt to forget the letters that he saw either <laughs> yeah <laughs> like it, <laughs> that's right it that's, that's exactly right yeah this episode of Very Bad Wizards is brought to you once again by Listening.com. Listening is an app that turns academic papers, textbooks, websites, uh, emails, PDFs, anything, turns it into audio so that you can listen to it on the go as if you were listening to an audiobook. So rather than be stuck statically at a desk or on a couch reading some of these papers that maybe you need to do for academics, for your work, or just for your interest, you can actually be on the go. It has a bunch of really cool features. Um, one of the things that it's amazing at is that it actually can read math equations. It will, it's intelligent enough to know to skip citations and footnotes. It can pronounce all kinds of academic technical words. It also has this cool uh, note-taking button so that if you just press this button, it'll actually automatically uh, copy the sentence that you're listening to and put it into a notepad. It can automatically detect sections of a paper and so break it up into chapters like we do on the podcast. It'll even put data into tables uh, so that you can visually look at them within the app. So if you're at all like me, somebody who uh, not only just as 
an academic, somebody who who has to make a living reading papers, but also somebody for this podcast. I'm often reading articles, PDFs on the web. Um, if you're at all like me, this will be very handy. In fact, I'm traveling tomorrow and I will be able to, on my plane flight and on my car ride to the airport, I'll be able to listen to some of the things that I really need to get out of the way and listen to without having to worry about actually, in my case, getting motion sick. Um, so if this sounds at all like something that you might use, you probably know if you're somebody who would use this. If you go to listening.com slash VBW, you will get three weeks for free. That's an extra free week on top of what people normally get. So again, go to listening.com slash VBW if you want to give listening.com a try. Our thanks to listening.com for sponsoring this episode of Very Bad Wizards. He's clearly uh, um, put Beatrice up on a pedestal that she probably didn't deserve, you know, but he wants to hold on to that. He wants to hold on to it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, This is about grasping. This is about trying to hold on to things that can't be held on to, like as much as it is about the thought experiment of what it would mean to uh, perceive everything uh, everywhere at, all at, at once at, sorry, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I tried not to say it but yeah. so when he comes out of it um, Carlos uh, immediately says haha see like it uh, serves you right having your mind boggled for sticking your nose in where you weren't wanted said a jovial bored voice and you may rack your brains but you'll never repay me for this revelation not in a hundred years what a magnificent observatory eh Borges and Carlos is like, you did see it, right? You saw it clearly and color and everything. And this is the moment where he conceives of his revenge. He decides that he's not going to admit that he saw it, <laughs> that he's going to make Carlos think that he's actually crazy. And he, so he he just doesn't mention it at all. And he says, get out like, to the maybe, country air. Yeah. yeah, maybe it would be like fine if this house gets destroyed and you move out to the country, like get let's get some fresh country air. That's good medicine for you. And that's when he walks out after that. He just walks out on the street and he sees all faces looked familiar to him. That's so that's the end. That that's his revenge. He's he's gonna, just gonna make him he's gonna gaslight him. Gaslight him, exactly. Yeah. But then uh, we and get it's a such a mean, petty thing to do. He it's really doesn't come off that well. Especially when it's something that fucking mind blowing. Yeah. You've but, just seen the entire universe. This guy showed it to you, and your immediate thought is like, hey, I'm gonna get him. Like, <laughs> so unreliable narrator is the is a good way of describing it because you're kind of on his side as this guy is the bombastic praise of his own poetry. It's like uh-huh. uh, it, you can't imagine how like horrifying that would be to be subjected to it. But then you like the more you re- read the story, you realize like it's Borges that is the asshole here he's the petty small person who unfortunately found out that somebody um had sex with the woman that he loved and that he couldn't have at least not fully right and so we find out uh six months after the demolition of the building that they published his substantial poem and he says it goes without saying what happened Carlos Argentino won second place in the National Prize for Literature. The first prize went to Dr. Aita, third to Dr. Mario Bonfanti. Incredibly, 
<laughs> incredibly. My own work, the Sharper's Cards, did not earn a single vote. Which is Once something more, that Carlos Argentino would have said. Would have said, exactly. Yeah. Borges then says there are two observations that, that he wants to add with the regard of the nature of the Aleph. He says, um, in the Kabbalah, that letter Aleph signifies and soft the pure and unlimited Godhead. So it's supposed to represent God. And the shape of that Hebrew letter is supposed to represent the, a man pointing to the sky and to the earth, which is a like an alchemical symbol of a, like as above, so below, macrocosm, macrocosm. And uh, he asks whether or not Carlos Argentino actually chose that name or he had read it in one of the innumerable texts revealed to him by the Aleph in his house. Um, and then he goes on to say, and this is a part that I'm just not sure about. He then goes on to argue that he thinks that this was actually a false Aleph, that this was one of many. And the reasons that he gives is just like that in some some Captain Burton book where he describes a bunch of these supposedly false Alephs that were like mirrors into the universe, but weren't actually, that there's only one true one. And that's lies in inside the pillars of stone in some temple in and you can in, only hear it. You can't see it. You can only hear it. You can never see it, which is hilarious. Um, in Cairo. I have some thoughts about why he does that. Um, so do you think it's just like defensiveness? Yes. Like, yeah. You think he's created, he's crafted it. He, he was like looking for something to like believe that that wasn't, that this guy didn't have access to like the true Alex. Uh, uh, yeah. Right. You know, like I, I don't fully process the the stuff about Beatrice and Carlos. So I was thinking of it more that he's trying to process the fact that he saw the Aleph and can't describe it properly. Yeah, and right. so he doesn't want to think that he had this transcendent experience that he can't describe and can't even remember properly. And it's just faded into nothing like Beatrice. And so he's going to say it's a false Aleph. Like maybe mm -hmm. he's going to say Beatrice was a false, like she was pathological. Like, I think that's like, oh, she was just, path that's why she didn't like me. She's pathological. Yeah. But, uh, so, so sort of like that in the sense, and he, like, I think the story does such a good job about having at the macro level this deep question of how like language can it e capture the transcendent no can it capture yeah. the infinite and the simultaneous no but like what do we do with that what do we do with the fact that we can have these experiences and then not be able to even remember it or uh unless we're having it it just fades away and like we just plug words in uh, in a kind of pitiful way and Carlos Argentino does it in his way Borges does it in his way that's better but it's still just not up to the task of it you know and I think it's yeah. like it's not just the the Aleph the Kabbalah like this mystical object it doesn't just apply to those things or maybe like experiences in meditation that you might have but then they're gone and you don't even like and then they fade and it's like did it even happen you know like uh, but but it's not just that. I also think it's like he's feeling this about Beatrice and his feelings for her. And mm -hmm. every time he tries to describe her, you know, he starts getting a little pretentious or he starts getting a little resentful. And so first he starts getting a little pretentious, the whole thing about the Susan of whatever <laughs> of uh, uh, palsy. Uh, yeah. And then he, you know, then he gets very tender and he just and, and but and then he tries to dismiss it. 
that's what I think the false olive is, is like he is also unable to not just describe what he loved about Beatriz, um, but also he's losing the ability to even remember it. And so he lashes out at that inability. These moments in our lives that are deeply meaningful, but every time we try to like describe them, they get debased, but even remember them, they start getting debased. And uh, and there's just certain things that are like that. Some things get richer when you try to describe them, but some things get debased and memory is just like that. Yeah, I, I like that a lot. And, and it reminds me, I didn't read the very last paragraph, which I think is pretty crucial. It says, uh, when he describes that the real Aleph that might be within those stone pillars in Cairo, he says, does that Aleph exist within the heart of a stone? Did I see it when I saw all things and then forget it? Our minds are permeable to forgetfulness. I myself am distorting and losing through the tragic erosion of the years, the features of Beatrice. Exactly. That's the Which, thing that yeah. kind of made me uh, think of what I just said. And it also yeah. kind of exposes the fact that if that all existed, he would have seen it. But maybe yeah. he could have forgotten it. But uh, And it's all it's very hard to know, like, was he supposed to have, like, not only seen everything, but actually actually seen everything? You know, like, it's right. It's like you see a crowd, you look in a crowd of people and you're in some sense seeing everybody, but you don't see everybody. But like, yeah. it really does seem like this truly mystical experience was that he actually observed every single thing and that entered his mind. So he thinks he should have seen that right. other Aleph in there. You know? But I guess if it was a false Aleph, he might not have. That's the other thing, which is like, <laughs> yeah. How, why would you think that you could see it if it was, a, if there was a true Aleph out there and this was a false Aleph, how could the false Aleph show you? <laughs> where the true one is. It's a, a little paradoxical. Exactly. Um, right. <laughs> I, there was something that uh, was too juicy for me, like getting lost in reading about the Kabbalah. Um, so uh, the 19th staircase, I was like, I wonder why the 19th. Uh, yeah. yeah, the the number 19 is of significance, apparently, from what I read in the Kabbalah, because you know how like every letter has a numerical value in the Hebrew alphabet? Apparently, the word for God, Yahweh, the, just the Y-H-W-H, has the numerical value of 26. But when you put in the uh, the vowels, so the, the unwritten things, right. but the sounds that you require in order to pronounce them, those vowels have the value of 19. And they say that like, Man. in order to actually say the, the word God you require those unwritten sounds and those sounds are even more valuable than the written ones, like the ones that come out of your mouth. Like, yeah. That's interesting. That's pretty fucking cool. <laughs> That's really interesting. So Hebrew, uh, when, you know, like in the Torah, there's, uh, depending on the kind of Torah, but uh, often when Hebrew is written, um, there's no vowels. It's just yeah. consonants. And so the vowels are something that we have to import with our previous knowledge. That's fascinating. That's really yeah. interesting. And they really add up cool. to 19. Yeah. 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 So, so, of course, the Aleph is there. In the Aleph, of course, the letter itself is supposed to stand for God. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. This the whole Jewish mysticism 
tradition is something I don't know that much about. You probably know more than I do. Ironically. Maybe slightly. Like, yeah. So cool though. I love that Kabbalah shit. <laughs> yeah. We should do Pi, you know, the Aronofsky yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, first movie because um, it is about that, the kind of numerology that's uh, a part of the Kabbalah tradition. So uh, it's funny, through discussion, like I had the sense when I read it that that the tables were actually turned, that this that the villain was actually Borges. But like I'm more not, not villain, but you know, but I am more convinced that Carlos Argentino like is got a bad rap. I think <laughs> like he can... did. I, I don't think Borges is a villain though. Mm-hmm. Like in a way, I think he is somebody who is trying to come to terms with the fact that as an artist, he can't describe the ineffable as a man he can't hold on to the ineffable and yes also that this idealized vision of this woman that he loved would be with this pompous insufferable uh asshole but like you know in the end it's carlos argentino who this whole time has had this uh, Olive in his basement and has tried to maybe incompetently, maybe in a way that's kind of cringy has yeah. uh, tried to express it to the outside world. And in the end, it was just as futile a task as anything Borges is trying to do. He can't hold on to Beatrice. He can't hold on to the memory. He can't hold on to whatever he experienced with the Olive. And so he's going to figure out ways of trying to, to, to deal with that, including being, uh, being uncharitable uh, at, in his description of Carlos Argentino. <laughs> right. And it it is, I think, worth coming back to what you were alluding to when we started this, when we f- read the first stanzas of of Carlos's poem that sounds so cringy. Now that we know what the Aleph is, and we go back to these, you're totally right. Like, yeah, of course, that's what it's it's insufferable but it's also trying to accurately describe what this kid has been looking at for like his entire life uh, i have seen as did the greek the man cities and his fame the works the days of various light the hunger i prettify no fact i falsify no name for the voyage i narrate is like, all that's exactly. true yeah it's 100 percent true. true yeah yeah and yeah. and you really read it differently like when, yeah this is a when, story you have to reread for sure yeah yeah, yeah. so good so, so good, good. All right. Uh, We may come back to the themes of this story. I think they are at the center of a lot of the things that we're interested in. But uh, anything else to add? No, I love love you, Jorge. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Unlike Beatrice, I hope you love me back. (laughs) He does. (laughs) All right. Join us next time on Very Bad Wizards. Just a very bad wizard.